Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. At last, my army of drones is complete. With one click from this control, they will rise and seize control of the skies. They said I was mad at University Hodor. It's Gregor. Excuse me, Dr. Wolfendrone. Quiet, I practiced this speech. All the so-called cool people who wouldn't eat lunch with me in high school never suspected that while I was sitting alone in the cafeteria eating my pink slime and tater tots, I was quietly mastering the three critical parameters of flight dynamics. Pitch, roll, and... What's the third one, Igor? Yaw, and it's Gregor. But, Dr. Wolfendrone, that's... Silence! Just seconds from now, my 300 little drones will fly through the air and seek out all those popular people and taser them. And vengeance will be mine. Are you ready, my precious ones? One, two, three. Rise. Nothing? How can this be? Dr. Wolfendrone, that's the TV remote you're using. This one is the drone remote. Ugh, they all look the same, don't they? Maybe you could make, like, little labels, you know, cable remote, drone remote, space-time vortex remote, you know, so we'd know. Yes, Doctor. Do you think I should just start over? At last, my army of drones is complete. I would just pick it up from where you're counting. Okay. One, two, three! Rise! <laughs> Fly, my pretty ones. Go and steal the lunches of the popular kids. No, Doctor. They're supposed to tase them. Whatever. Go do something. Meanwhile, our show today is about a TV critic, the first gay NBA player, and fools who think they can regulate my drones. And now, a person who may be all three of those things, Colin McEnroe. I'm definitely the first uh, gay NBA player. All right, so we will be talking about drones <clears throat> Excuse me, later in the show. And we also will be talking about the first uh, NBA gay player, or gay NBA player, uh, as the case may be. But we're going to begin talking about television with Willa Paskin. She's a Slate's TV critic. Uh, and uh, I've just fallen in love with her work over time, partly because it's really exciting to see somebody who can effectively and compellingly challenge uh, you, the reader, about things that maybe you like that she sees maybe a worm in the apple somehow. Uh, she's very good at that. So first of all, Willa Paskin, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. And we're going to start with uh, True Detective, which is, of course, a show on HBO. It's kind of an unusual concept. It's like this sort of curated series where I guess every season it will be a, a different bunch of detectives. Everything will change except the one person who's kind of behind the scenes in charge of everything. But uh, this uh, season we're watching Woody Harrelson and Matthew McConaughey. Uh, Willa Paskin has coined the, the, the term McConaughey. Uh, oh, no, the, no, 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 no. Oh, somebody else? I wish, oh. I wish I had coined the term McConaughey, but the the internet, oh, the internet invented that you know, term, and I've just adopted it. Right, you should yeah. just copyright it and claim it's yours. I mean, that's what everybody else does. I'm happy. I'll start pretending right, right. now. So one of the things you're, you're dealing with in your latest piece about True Detective, and this is um, uh, this is a series about two detectives who uh, have investigated uh, a series of homicides, and they're garish homicides. They involve women. One of the first things we see uh, is uh, is the body of a woman who's who, her, her, she's dead. She's nude. Antlers uh, f- have been affixed to her head. She's been defeated 
faced in other ways. Uh, and I think as your friends at uh, Slate Culture Gabfest said, when you start with something like that, there better be some kind of payoff. This better just not be another series about brutal, horrible things happening to women and men kind of running around doing their halfway level best to kind of figure out what's happening. Um, and, and I think that's a, that's a question you address, right? I mean, the women in this series they're not the solvers of puzzles. They're pretty much targets. Uh, and they're also sexual objects in, in pretty graphic ways. And yet you, you sort of have worked out a, an argument for forgiving that quality this time. Right. I mean, I think often when you watch a TV show, you you sort of fall in love with it. And then sometimes you have to go back and really think about what it is that you love about it. And I don't usually like TV shows that treat women terribly. It's a kind of, I watch a lot of TV, Mm -hmm. um, ultraviolence and that sort of very specific, there's, you know, these corpses of women that we're sort of supposed to be horrified at, but they're usually naked, so we're also titillated. I have have very little patience for at this point. But I think True Detective, and even from that very beginning scene with the body, um, it treated that body much more tastefully and circumspectly than most procedurals, most, you know, sort of network shows do. You saw it, I don't think... You really saw it extremely naked until a scene later when it was sort of for a minute on um, in the morgue. But it, it sort of glimpses and flashes. So we've seen a lot of glimpses and flashes of women in this show. While the two main characters are these um, sort of very manly men, although one is kind of like a mystical-minded one. And, and all the other characters, including the other men, have sort of um, been really in the background to them. But I think that the show is really conscious of the fact that it has not made its female characters super strong um, because it's really a show that is about dead women. It's about dead women that disappear and that nobody looks for them. You know, it's taking place in Louisiana. It's in the bayou. And there's all these sort of unreported deaths one of the detectives kind of figures out. So I think the show is very smart and it's it's I think it's aware as opposed to oblivious to some of the cliches that it's playing into. Um, and I, I'm really interested to see where it goes because I sort of suspect that in the finale, which is only two more away, you know, people ignoring women over time is going to have, you know, had been a big part in why this case wasn't solved sooner or a big part of the case. There are little flashes uh, where this where the show maybe declares some of these sensibilities. Uh, we've got a clip here. This is um, they're they're visiting um, some people of interest. They're visiting what is essentially kind of a, a backwoods whorehouse um, and where there seems to be at least one significantly underage prostitute. You're going to hear Woody Harrelson as one of the detectives, Marty, uh, talking to uh, one of the women uh, at this house of prostitution. That girl's not 18. Sheriff, know you got underage working here? What do you know about where that girl's been? Where she come from? You want to know Beth's situation? Before she ran out on her uncle? There are other places she could go. Such holy bullshit from you. It's a woman's body, ain't it? A woman's choice. Well, she don't look like a woman to me. At that age, she is not equipped to make those kind of choices. But I guess you don't give a what kind of damage she's doing to herself as long as you're making your money. Girls walk this earth all the time screwing for free. Why is it you add business to the mix and boys like you can't stand the thought? I'll tell you. It's because suddenly you don't own it the way you thought you did. 
Now, last night on True Detective, uh, Willa Paskin, uh, Woody Harrelson's character, Marty, met up with that same formerly underage prostitute uh, six or seven years down the line, decided she was uh, old enough to make certain kinds of choices uh, and made those choices really, really graphically with him. It was, uh, I think, as you said, an almost pornographic um, sex scene between the two of them. But, But here... This is where you're kind of working on this a little bit, where you're sort of saying the male gaze of this movie is really being impugned as opposed to celebrated. I think that that's right. I think there's obviously a lot of ways to see some of these scenes. You know, it is an HBO show. There is nudity. The women have been a lot more naked than the men. They've been sort of very attractive and young. One of the actresses who was nude in it tweeted when she saw that the president had was interested in watching True Detective was like, oh, I guess the president has seen my breasts now. You know, it's a very it's 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 playing into a lot of that stuff. But I do think with a scene like the one you just heard, um, it's clearly aware of itself. You know, Marty sort of takes this very self-righteous stand. We know enough about him at the time even to know that um, he's more of a hypocrite than he seems. Fast forward seven years and he's the biggest hypocrite of all. You know, so it, he clearly um sort of is taking up for women at the same time as he's totally using them. And I think the show is, is uh, like, attentive to those sort of tensions. Is there, I mean, I, I actually think that your analysis is, is spot on. Although I, I wonder if there's sort of, from a critic's point of view, a larger set of questions here about just the, particularly the, the degree to which HBO and other kinds of paid cable series kind of really depend on a certain level of you know, 85 percent female nudity uh, so that you've got all these English and Irish actresses getting into Game of Thrones and saying, really, I've got to do that. Uh, I've got to, to be on this series. I've got to do that. Um, and, and and, you know, it just seems now it's sort of the price of admission to having one of these sort of golden age of television, high quality cable series is that a lot of women have to strip and do some pretty vivid stuff. Absolutely. And, and you would think on a show as good as True Detective, if they really were hyper aware of it. If they really wanted to do everything they could, they would have less people be naked altogether. Um, but yeah, I mean, the sex position stuff, that's what they call it on Game of Thrones, where these scenes where everyone's having sex while someone is explaining some very clunky mm-hmm. plot point to you, just so you know it's not so boring. I mean, they do a lot of, there's a lot of this. And, and I think actually the truth is, and this is what's a little bit tricky, is, you know, from a critical perspective, or if you're watching it um, in a really discerning way, you can be offended by that and and see that it's exploitative. But on the other hand, a lot of people, that's what they're paying for. You know, that's one of the things that HBO and these premium cable channels can do that other people can't. You know, they can have naked people, and that's fun. And TV is supposed to be fun. So, um, you know, I'm in the business of overthinking it. I think that <laughs> HBO should be careful about it. But I do think that, you know, there, what, however serious a show is, there's clearly always going to be people who are just looking at it in a much less serious way. You know, um, there's some, there are things that lure us, that bring us to True Detectives. Uh, some of them just to the two performances, the male leads. And uh, although I was relieved last night to have a little bit of a break from Matthew McConaughey's incredibly aggressive demonstrative smoking. I mean, if there were an Olympic event that involved smoking, he he and his character would be winning. Uh, but just even watching that is sort of weird and oppressive and, and, and interesting in its own right. Then you do have this, this dynamic between the two of them. But you also have this real sense of mystery. You know, there are these now allusions to the Yellow King and Slade and some other public 
publications have been exploring all kinds of bizarre, obscure literary connections uh, to what's going on up there. And, and your piece today made me think suddenly, because over the weekend and, and today, people are tweeting about the fact, I don't know how anybody knows this, but supposedly it's the 25th anniversary of the death of Laura Palmer, So, uh, who was, of course, the, 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 the death of that precipitates all the action in, in Twin Peaks. And, and so, you know, it did sort of, I suddenly saw a connection between these two series. Once again, you begin Twin Peaks with a woman's dead body, this one wrapped in plastic. Um, but there was there there's, was a sense that what David Lynch was doing also was exploring mystery through women. The other, the surviving women characters on the series were, I thought, by and large, the more interesting people. Uh, and, and there was a sort of a sense that, that what was, what could be learned uh, through Twin Peaks would probably be learned through these female characters. And then also this sense that True Detective has too, which is there are a lot of questions being raised, some of which we may never get answers to. Yeah. I mean, I think the thing about Twin Peaks versus True Detective is, you know, Twin Peaks ultimately was this really far out metaphysical show. You know, it's I mean, not to sp- I, I hope it is OK for me to spoil Twin Peaks 20 years later. But, you know, the murderer, Bob, is not even a he's a spiritual being who hops from body to body, you know, and and David Lynch really went for that. And that was um, that's part of what makes Twin Peaks still so interesting and fun to watch. But I think the thing about True Detective that's been interesting for me is it's been very fun to go down these rabbit holes, you know, like almost every name that the show uses references someone, usually a religious scholar or, you know, an old horror writer. And there's all these um, symbols that keep recurring. But I'm not really sure that ultimately the show is going to be that metaphysical. I think probably there's going to be a murderer and it's going to be something very concrete and that and that actually it is this cop show it's a genre cop show that is you know better done than most of them it's certainly um i think it's smarter and it certainly wants to be smarter but it's really about this partnership of these cops trying to solve this really grisly crime and though the people who are perpetrating this crime may believe all this sort of fanciful stuff, I think they're probably just going to turn out to be a satanic murder cult, you know? Like, it's, it's going to be something more straightforward. Or it could just turn out to be Bob again. You know, they could just, the last <laughs> episode, it could be Bob. We can hope. Yeah. We can hope. So we're talking to Willa Paskin from uh, Slate. We have to sort of jump from show to show here to cram some stuff in here. So um, a show that probably is uh, takes its pretensions uh, a lot less seriously is Nashville, which I feel uh, a weekly sense of guilt for wanting to watch. I uh, It's very similar to the show Smash, which was about Broadway, except I actively hate-watched Smash, Whereas Nashville is kind of there sitting on the DVR list every week. And I think, yeah, I think I am going to watch it again. So, uh, first of all, just one of the joys of Nashville is a performance being given by, Hayden, at least for me, Hayden Panettiere as uh, as this diva-like pop country star, Juliet Barnes. Uh, so, let's hear uh, Juliet having one of her classic tantrums. Everybody get out of here! What the hell's going on? Can y'all hear me? Come on, get out! You are my employees. You work for me. Not this man. Me. Okay? Whatever I say gets done. And if anybody ever goes behind my back to my band, to my crew, or anybody else, you'll be right back at the county fair looking for your next teen queen. You know what? I'm done. I quit. Anybody else? Huh? Show's over. So note the ominous soap opera music welling up in the background. Um, Willa Paskin, Mark Twain once said Wagner's music uh, is better than it sounds. Uh, and, and I feel that way a little bit about Nashville, that really you look at it, it really is a soap opera and it has 
all of the disgraceful conventions of soap opera and just sort of bizarre plot twists as if our attention spans were so minuscule that we really had to be confronted with some brand new coupling every five or six minutes. Um, But I don't know. Somehow or other, I feel like I'm not wasting my life watching that. So explain that to me. Well, I mean, there is... You don't have to be sad that it's a soap opera. There's nothing wrong with a soap opera. A soap opera done well is a great thing. I mean, most shows that are done well are soap operas. Uh, I think Nashville is really interesting because it has these really good bones. It's set in Nashville, which is like a great setting. It has all these very good actors. In addition to Hayden Panettiere, it has Connie Britton, who is on Friday Night Lights and is wonderful. Um, It has some really good songs. T-Bone Burnett was the music supervisor for a long time. Uh, They're all very talented. And it's about, you know, people are trying to make it and be ambitious and and really have something to strive for. Um, And then again and again, it takes the boring storyline. It has become totally fixated on this political storyline involving um, Connie Britton's characters, Raina's ex-husband, who never, you know, should have left the show after episode one, and he continues to take up time. (laughs) It it, it wastes times on romances we know aren't real. Um, You know, more seriously, I think that, the thing is that it doesn't quite know how to plot itself. You know, it's a soap opera that has a little bit of a plotting problem, which is that it saves the stuff we really want for later because it's scared that if it gets through it, it won't have anything. And instead, it just sort of gives us dribbles of things that are supposed to distract us but aren't aren't as good as the stories that, you know, the love stories or the career stories that we really want. It, I do think that one of the things that helps it out a lot is the music, which, uh, as you say, uh, I, you sort of said it in the past tense. I don't know if he's left the show. But T-Bone Burnett, who has really become this incredible brand name for getting music right, especially music south of the Mason-Dixon line and west of the Mississippi. Uh, you know, you better have T-Bone Burnett involved. And and if you do, there's a certain quality that, that it will get right. And, and so it gets everything right. The alt-country stuff. I mean, I'm not a country music fan, but I feel like the alt-country, the mainstream, the pop-country stuff, it it just is being done very well. So even if you're not buying some of the plot twists, you don't have to wait more than six or seven minutes before there's kind of a cool musical performance. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's funny. There are there's a really great story to tell about what's happening in the music business right now, because the music business, like so many other businesses, businesses is in this you know, it's in so much upheaval and change. And obviously the big companies are breaking into smaller companies and there's no reason to sign with a large label. And and so they have one of the main characters, Raina, is starting her own label. And it seems like a very kind of like fertile territory. And I assume, and this isn't a spoiler because I don't know, but I assume where it's going is Raina is going to end up signing Juliet to her label and finally they're going to get to team up and hate each other while they try to take on country music, which I'm really excited to see. Um, But in the meantime, they've kind of been wasting their time on things that aren't that interesting. You know, it's very hard to make like meetings interesting. Mad Men does it really well. You know, it can be done, but you have to really have the writing to sort of do some of this building block stuff about how you get a business off the ground. You know, you may perceive it differently. I sense that you do. But one of the surprises for me, I mean, Connie Britton came into this series uh, with the wind at her back from Friday Night Lights, where she was Tammy Taylor and everybody in America, including me, was ready to drink her bathwater. And, and and I feel like in some ways she's been swallowed up by this series a little bit. She, she first of all, doesn't have the real kind of singing voice that this pint-sized you know, Hayden Panettiere uh, has. And, and she, her role isn't quite as colorful. It's kind of the anchoring role rather than the, the real florid role. Um, and some of these minor players, some of the lesser players have kind of come forward also to really grab the spotlight. I feel in some ways as though Reina and Connie Britton are the least interesting things about Nashville, which I would not have bet on. 
Which means Dashville is doing something wrong also, by the way. I, there's, you know, after seeing Friday Night Lights, there's no – in which Connie Britton sort of stole that show from everybody else. There's no reason that she shouldn't – they shouldn't be able to use her better on Nashville, basically. Although it is populated – I mean, there are some supporting characters that are really good. But I have never seen a show so often where they introduce somebody and you know in your head – that you don't even need to learn their name because they're just going to be there for three episodes and then go away. Like disposable boyfriends, disposable girlfriends. The other thing that they've done that is very similar to Smash is that now they now have this cascade of country music cameos. And I'm not enough of a, a connoisseur to even know who I'm seeing half the time. But you, you now you see just passing through some big party scene or some gala or, or some club, there's apparently two or three country music performers whom I should know who are discussing some little tiny aspect of the plot as though these people were as real as they are. Right, and you can only tell because they're the worst actors you've ever seen on television, and they're sort of standing, like looking directly at the camera, making sure they said their line okay. You know, it's yes, they do have a lot of that, and it it sort of always brings the show to a weird halt. All right, so uh, it's a guilty pleasure, and but it is it is a pleasure, and uh, um, maybe a few people will, will try it out and wonder what in the world it is we're talking about. Uh, we want to talk about sort of one of the other great phenomena uh, in television right now. It's the Netflix series House of Cards. It's Kevin Spacey, uh, obviously, as uh, the villainous Frank Underwood. Uh, let's get ready for this. We've got a, a little Frank uh, Underwood montage that somebody else did it, uh, on YouTube, and we're stealing a little bit of. You sharpen the blade, hold it in just the right angle, and then three... Two, one. Forward, that is the battle cry. I'm feeling hungry today. Nobody can hear you. Nobody cares about you. I have no patience for useless things. Look at the bigger picture. That's how you devour a whale, dog. One bite at a time. Well, if not you, then who? I don't give a hoot about natural gas, but I have 67 deputy whips and they all need cash to win races. Sancorp helps me purchase loyalty and in return they expect mine. It's degrading, I know, but when the... That big, everybody gets in line. Centuries from now, when people watch this footage, who will they see smiling just at the edge of the frame? In a town where everyone's so carefully reinventing themselves, what I like about Freddie is that he doesn't even pretend to change. All right, so that's uh, the Kevin, Sp- Kevin Spacey as the deliciously villainous Frank Underwood. Although, Willa Baskin, this uh, series, although it has a tremendous cachet and, and people are getting very excited about it and binge-watching it, uh, for me, I, I've had a hard time having this grab me. To me, it feels like I'm watching Richard III with no Bosworth Field, you know, with no Richmond uh, who's ever going to be able to take this guy down. I mean, ultimately, for our sense of the universe to be put in its right order, uh, people like this, uh, whether it's Frank Underwood or Walter White, they got to go down sooner or later. And I just feel like that's never going to happen. Yeah, I mean, also listening to that clip, I mean, he's playing a comedy. I mean, that southern accent is so it's dripping. It's so big. And I mean, it it makes me laugh a little bit. I think I think that Kevin Spacey actually is having quite a bit of fun. No, 100 percent. I think House of Cards is really is missing um, an antagonist. Uh, I think that we're supposed to think and I think often that we see that Frank is his own worst enemy, that the only person who's really going to be able to bring him down is himself when he overreaches or he, you know, lets his pride get in the way or he isn't as canny as he thought. But that can be really dramatically inert at times. Um, And I don't know if you've seen this season, but this season I'm not going to say because... Yeah, people are desperate. still new to people, yeah, they're, right? They're desperate for no season two spoilers. Right. But, you know, there are a lot of characters that have been in the past sort of uh, threats to Frank sort of get dispatched very quickly in various ways. So we're really just watching Frank's rise. Um, and it's true. It 
you wish that there would be somebody who was at least as smart as him. You know, the show kind of protects him from giving him someone that's really as clever as him and 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 amoral as him and willing to do all the crazy things he's willing to do. You know, he sort of gets to a, one of the uh, things I like about your work is they every once in a while you do sort of call our attention to, well, where's the moral locus in this thing? You, you did a thing um, uh, about a month or so ago about Justified, which is a series that I like a lot. But and there was something bothering me about Justified, and I couldn't quite figure out what it was until you kind of quantified it. Uh, and, and that was that it, it kind of has become, not unlike House of Cards, a comedy uh, in which very, very serious things happen. Uh, and so you sort of wonder, well, is that what it is? Is it just sort of a very, very, in, in the case of Justified, violent comedy? In the case of uh, House of Cards, a politically dark comedy that began his existence. The first thing you see is this guy, uh, Frank Underwood, killing the neighbor's dog, twisting its neck because it's it's broken and it's not going to survive. Um, so a very, very dark comedy. I mean, it's we live in an era of hybrid products like this one, but ultimately they have to locate themselves somehow. Well, I mean, also, you know, it's just also about what a thing purports to be. There's a lot of TV shows that are very fun. There's a lot of TV shows that are about serious things that you're supposed to, you know, procedurals that you're supposed to watch while you're having dinner, you know, that are um, that are soothing, even though they're about death or murder. And that's fine. We need TV shows that are like that. TV is supposed to be distracting. It's supposed to be something you can, you know, watch while eating dinner. But these shows that have grander ambitions, that their creators sort of talk about them with grander ambitions, those I think sometimes you do have to check if, if that's really true, if, you know, if, if they sort of pass the sniff test of that. I think the thing about House of Cards is it clearly takes itself very seriously. And Netflix takes it very seriously. It's kind of its flagship show. Um, and I'm not sure it is that serious. So, I mean, is that holding it to a kind of false standard? You know, it's not as good as it says it is, but it's still kind of fun. I mean, that may be, but I think that that's sort of the deal with that show. It's not as good as it says it is, but, you know, there's worse ways to kill 13 hours. Um, Willa Paskin, it's been so great to talk to you. Willa Paskin is a Slate's TV critic. Uh, we'll just end here because I said the music was one of the pleasures of Nashville. Uh, they broke them up uh, and they keep uh, threatening to get them back together. This is Gunner and Scarlet, one of their great early duos, I Will Fall. If you wanted to work it out, watch it lock the door. I thought I was good at loving you. And all I All right, coming up in our final segment, Mike Pesca rejoins us. We'll be talking about the NBA's new gay player. Also, a uh, proposed NFL rule about racial taunts uh, and even gender-based taunts uh, on the playing field. Uh, before we do that, we are going to visit the world of drones. You know, we, we try never to do this on our show. We could do this more often than we do it. We try never to say, I told you so. But in May of 2012, we did do a whole show about domestic drones, and I wound up calling state officials, asking them, you know, what the plans were for the advent of domestic drones, and everybody 
treated me like I was asking a very crazy question. And we even had at least one state official on the show that day saying that this whole problem was four or five years away. Well, guess what? It's not. And in fact, the General Assembly this session will be considering some kind of drone-related legislation or barring that a task force uh, to, to sort of more comprehensively talk about drone-related legislation with the idea maybe in the longer section ne- session next time around to, to get some laws uh, on the books. Matt Ritter joins us. He's a Democratic state rep for the 1st Assembly District, vice chair of the Judiciary Committee, where this uh, legislation will no doubt start. So, Matt Ritter, what are the prospects here? What are you What are you thinking about right now in terms of regulating these robotic uh, aerial devices that we have now come to call drones? Well, hi, Colin. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. And uh, we're actually right now in the middle of a public hearing, uh, and the drone bill is one of the raised bills. So we'll be here. We were here all morning. We'll be here probably late into the uh, or into the early evening talking about drones with a lot of testimony. We had a uh, chief of police association. We've had the ACLU already today. Uh, and basically what we've we've taken a first cut at the bill as currently drafted would do a couple things. One is it would uh, enhance criminal penalties for the use of a drone in certain situations, uh, putting a weapon on them, uh, things like uh, violating the voyeurism st- statutes or stalking statutes, but also putting restrictions on when uh, law enforcement can utilize them. As you know, the technology for drones is, uh, as you probably talked about, I heard you say two years ago, it is getting better and better. And so there's some concerns about when police could use them without having to obtain a warrant, which is what a lot of the discussion was about today. Uh, the one thing I should mention is that a lot of people have asked about the commercial use of drones, right, the applications that we might agree could be useful uh, for mapping purposes, surveying, things like that. That's all not covered by this, this current law. That's going to be covered by the FAA, who's coming out with a series of regulations next year which will essentially, many people predict, will open the skyways to the use of, you know, probably in the next 10 to 20 years, tens of thousands of drones for commercial use. So it seemed like, reading the coverage, that part of the idea was that there almost be a penalty intensifier here for drone use. Like, you do something bad, you do it with a drone. It's a bigger problem than if you just did it some other way? Absolutely. Um, because, I mean, think about it. You can take a drone. There are drones that now fly 24 hours consecutively. Um, you could take a drone that's not very big. These are not the kind the U.S. military uses. They're very small. You would probably never notice it. It could eavesdrop and hear every conversation you're having in your house. It could take photos without you ever knowing about it. So we actually put uh, a heightened felony in place to let people know how serious it is that if you violate the underlying statute of, say, stalking or things like that, and you use a drone, um, the jail sentence could be a lot longer. Absolutely. Now, on the law enforcement side, it is complicated, right? Because in some ways, when drones are being used for surveillance, there are substantial privacy issues, and probably, you know, a lot of us would say they should have to get a search warrant before they can use it. But then the other question becomes, if you've got drones flying around on behalf of law enforcement to do traffic monitoring, maybe even catch speeders, God knows what, or, or maybe they're, 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 they're helping with the apprehension of a suspect who's in flight, you know, so the drone's tracking them. Mm-hmm. Um, are they recording those images? So, Because let's say they're up there and, and, and they fly over George Jepson's house and he's sunbathing naked behind the walls there and <laughs> stuff like that, which we know goes on all the time. And, and, and they retain that, 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 the records of, of everything. In other words, uh, if, if the drones are there and, and there's a camera mounted on the drones, is the camera taping? Uh, back there in drone headquarters, and is law enforcement retaining a lot of images that they've got for possible future use later on down the line for for they don't even know what yet? It's a great question. It actually came up today, and the way the bill is currently drafted, they'd have to delete that information because that is a concern um, that you could be doing a flyover for crowd control or for any any valid reason, and then you could capture information that you could then use later. One of the exemptions in, in the bill actually speaks to um, the idea of emergency circumstances. The Brantford fire recently last month where they utilized drones for that, that would be uh, completely permissible under the current law. No one's trying to restrict that. But the, the things you mentioned, Colin, both 
The capturing of information for long-term use we do not believe is appropriate. And then also this idea that people have tried to compare drones to helicopters and very different technologies, okay? So a drone, particularly its ability to take really good photos and have the ability to listen in on conversations is, my understanding, very different technology than you have with a manned aircraft like a helicopter. And so if a poli- one thing you have to understand is, of course, the expectation of privacy. So if you are out at a, the Super Bowl, they were flying drones over the Super Bowl, you are in a public right away. If they were to capture something, uh, you get in a fight or doing something illegal, uh, you don't have that expectation of privacy. So I think in that case, you, you might be in trouble, and the drone could be helpful for police departments. But if you are in your home uh, or you are in uh, a place where you have that expectation of privacy, that's what we're worried about. And people have tried to make some comparisons between current technology that's utilized in drones, and our understanding is they're very, very different. The drones are far more sophisticated than helicopters, per se. I think this is a really unbelievably complicated topic, and I think even police departments should be careful of what they wish for, because one, at least police unions should be, because a lot of the functions, I mean, speed traps and things like that, three or four years from now, you may not need policemen to do that anymore, or police persons to do that anymore. There's a lot of things that a drone can do that are currently actually done by, you know, an employed member of the police force. I guess, Matt Ritter, what I'd be wondering is, given how complicated and how new this is, what's the likelihood, if you were a betting man, that you can actually get a workable, passable, signable by the governor bill? It's going to be difficult. Uh, you know, people mentioned the short session. The one thing that, you know, and again, the Chiefs Association recommended a task force. I know that's, and I've heard some, some colleagues in the, in the Judiciary Committee today say that would be a good default position. But there is another approach that uh, Virginia took, which was just simply a one-year moratorium. See, our only concern is that we'd rather come out and set some, some standards early on as opposed to letting drones be utilized more regularly and then having to bring the, you know, the horse back into the barn. So there's a lot of approaches we could take between now and, and, and the first Wednesday in May, but um, I would say that there's our people who are going to argue for a task force, but at some point, the only thing I would say as a legislator is that it's our job to pass laws, and it's our job. This is a thorny issue. It's very difficult, but it is our role. It's what we're elected to do, and although task force can be very useful, we don't want to overutilize those um, when at the end of the day, the legislature's going to have to take up the bill anyway. And so I think for myself, Representative Albus, or the members of the Committee of Judiciary who have looked into this, we're going to try to bring the parties together and say, look, if we've got to get to the default position, let's get there. But too often we do that, and we don't grapple with these difficult issues, which there is, uh, there is a sense of urgency this year. I think people are very worried that if we don't do something now, we may regret that a year from now when the, the technology is more widely utilized. All right, Matt Ritter, first of all, thanks for your time. This is an interesting topic. We will continue to follow it. If you hear a buzzing near your head, that's uh, Patrick Scahill's WNPR drone watching you. (laughs) Well, I appreciate you having me, and have a good afternoon. All right. We're going to take a little break. We'll come back with Mike Pesca. We've got a lot to talk about. Last I, Dr. Magnus von Wolfendrone, the world's maddest scientist, have an army of drones at my command. On the count of three, my little drones, go and do my grocery shopping. One, two, three. Whoa, wait, wait, you guys forgot the list. Come back. Stupid drones. Cue the music. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me. Our intern is Skylar Magnoli. Greg Hill appeared in our intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. 
Katie Talarski is our executive producer. The part of Bill Curry was played by Woody Harrelson. For show pages, articles, and videos of the Faith Middleton Show staff making soup stock out of a dead drone, visit our website, WNPR.org. On tomorrow's show, three women analyze what's wrong with professional sports. And now, back to Colin. All right, we're just a few moments away from getting uh, Mike Pesca, uh, and we've got some things to talk about with Mike Pesca. Uh, before we do, well, first of all, let me just say, and this is The Scramble, which is our Monday show, which we kind of put together on the fly. Uh, we are always interested in your feedback. My email is colin, C-O-L-I-N, at WNPR.org. Um, and I think Mike is just about ready to go. Uh, and as Mike gets ready to go, this is sort of one of our scheduled topics, but we would be remiss if we did not uh, take note of uh, actually a very, very sad occasion in the news today. Uh, Harold Ramis, one of the real kind of almost underrated talents of the Saturday Night Live and National Lampoon era of movie making, writer, director, and uh, comic actor, uh, has passed at the age of 69. Um, and uh, before we get going, and I know that Mike will share my appreciation, we should uh, uh, hear one more time from Ghostbusters and Dr. Egon Spengler. I'm worried, Ray. It's getting crowded in there, and all my recent data points to something big on the horizon. What do you mean, the big? Well, let's say this Twinkie represents the normal amount of psychokinetic energy in the New York area. According to this morning sample, it would be a Twinkie... 35 feet long, weighing approximately 600 pounds. <coughs> That's a big Twinkie. Oh, Mike Pesca. Harold Ramis, always the straight man or often the straight man, but what a great straight man, and he, he will be missed. And a great writer, and uh, I had the pleasure of speaking with him once at a, some sort of um, festival in Chicago, and he, I forgot why we were talking about this, but he laid on me this great insight about television, and he said that during the year... Tele- sorry, during the day, television goes from earnestness to irony at an almost like perfectly timed interval. So <laughs> those morning shows start off and they're extremely earnest. And by the time the late night comedians get to work over the news, we're in the land of irony. And I'm like, oh, Harold Ramis, you still got it. Multiplicity, not that good, but you still got it. All right. Yeah. Media theory. Uh, very good. All right. Mike Pesca works for Slate.com. He's the host on the Slate. He's a host on the Slate podcast, Hang Up and Listen, and is a contributor to NPR. You've heard him here many times before. So this has sort of been brewing for a while, but we, we do finally have a professional, active, gay athlete, not counting soccer, uh, for the first time. I've, when all those things have come together, right? We've had gay professional athletes and just not known it. We've had people who, who came out after their pro- professional careers. But, but Jason Collins is something of a landmark here. Right. Four, uh, of the four major North, North American male sports, remember that part, too. A lot of uh, female athletes have True. been gay without really any issue in play is like the WNBA, but it is a milestone. It's one of those milestones that, you know, maybe we'll look back on it and say, what's the weight? Right now, Adam Silver, the NBA commissioner, is saying, what, what, what was the weight? But it's great that it happened. And just the, oh, the paucity of derision and the, uh, and the amount of approval is really heartening. I mean, he didn't get a huge ovation when he went into the game in L.A., but he's a third-string center entering the game in the second quarter on the road. So what do you expect? You know, no one booed. He got a bit of a hand. So it's probably, it's just pretty much a great thing. It's been interesting to watch the evolution of this. Um, uh, we could start it in 2011 when Kobe Bryant uh, called an official a faggot uh, and, and ultimately had to apologize for that. And two years later, he was on Twitter correcting other people for using words like that but but 2011 isn't so far away i mean really they've they've worked hard to change their culture at least the outward manifestation of their culture 
Yeah, and I don't, you know, I, okay, so they've changed the culture with things like that. I think the whole society didn't realize, oh, I didn't realize that uh, that slur in the moment was, you know, as bad as any other slur. But now that realization has hit. And I just think the NBA is kind of one of the more forward-thinking sports locker rooms, at least. And, you know, I always point out that almost everyone, like 90-something percent of all the players in the NBA were born in the 80s and 90s. So you look at what young people think of the acceptance of homosexuality, say nothing of like gay marriage, and it's pretty much a non-issue. So generationally, at least, you would see why the NBA would welcome Jason Collins. And I think the Nets teammates are pretty excited to have this uh, third-string center who can contribute and has always contributed on defense. But they're excited to have him on their team, it seems to me. They're at least saying all the right things. Well, you know, it's, it maybe is fitting, or, or the, it's maybe the kind of thing that it almost had to be, is that he's not a finesse player. He's the guy who sets the hard pick, delivers the hard foul. He does really kind of the gut bucket work uh, of, uh, of an NBA player. Uh, there's nothing fancy about him. Yeah, same thing with Michael Sam. You know, this guy is like total tough and flies in the face of any kind of stereotypes you might have. But uh, who really has these stereotypes anymore? If you're going to be a successful football or basketball player, you're going to be a tough guy. I, I think, though, the NBA also, in a way, it, it's had several other moments to co- sort of come to Jesus moments about this, if I can uh, use that particular expression. I mean, going back to the time, I mean, really having a huge NBA star who was HIV positive on the floor playing basketball, um, a guy who insisted uh, that he was HIV positive as a result of straight sex. Uh, But all the same, you know, in some ways in the early 90s, because of magic, some of these issues got ginned up and thrashed out a little bit. There were uh, there was the whole whole idea that Isaiah Thomas had spread rumors. Magic thought about him that he didn't get uh, his HIV through uh, through straight sex. But in a way, the conversation started happening then in a way that it didn't in any other sport. Yeah, and there was that bad moment when Arsenio sort of breathed a sigh of relief when Magic said, oh, no, I'm not gay on his show. But, you know, since then, you know, Magic Johnson is a gay son, and I think he's been pretty okay on the issue. I don't know if he's been okay on the science, but he has to do what he has to do to uh, at least uh, get his head in the right place to live his life. But, yeah, I think you're right, and I think it's a lot of it has to do with the NBA being a small manageable 12 people but also the see your face aspect you know the 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 least guarded of all the professional sports teams no helmets we really get to know or at least think we get to know the personalities of these players and that's why there's a whole lot lot less hiding behind i think it'll be a distraction i mean the nba is much more much less opaque than these other leagues symbolically and literally and that's one of the reasons why there's been good reaction. You know, another question you could ask is, how could a league where Dennis Rodman was an all-star player be objecting to anybody's twisting around of sexuality? Because he did that a lot. I mean, with the boas and all this kind of stuff. And and supposedly when he was guarding people who, who he th- thought did have issues, did were a little defensive, he would kind of play up his his sexual amb- ambiguities in a way as to, to try to discomfort whoever he was guarding. Yeah, I think uh, every once in a while, just randomly, Dennis Dennis Rodman will uh, luck into a progressive role on a social issue. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he didn't plan it that way. Well, you know, another thing about this, though, you sort of wonder, and I think, once again, the NBA might be a little unusual. We always assume that no nobody ever knows anything about their teammates. But, you know, one remark that Charles Barkley dropped also a few years ago was that he had played with gay players. He said, you know, I, I played with gay players, uh, and, and people should just get it out of their heads that we can't deal with that or we can't deal with it in the locker rooms. He said, I'd rather have a gay guy who can play than a straight guy who can't. Um, But 
I'm guessing that, in fact, you know, John Amici, who came out later, I mean, I'm guessing some NBA players have always known that there were gay players in the NBA. Am I wrong about that? Well, John Amici says that he, you know, went to great lengths to hide it, and so do other former gay athletes, but maybe from a generation or half generation before John Amici. And then this news just came out that members of the Houston Oilers were, were gay and everyone knew about it. That usually does seem more the norm than the exception, though. Like, anytime there has been um, a rumor or uh, – at least a private confirmation of a gay player in a locker room. That hasn't really been much of a kerfuffle. Man, sports is one of the, especially on a team, actually those Oilers teams were terrible, but that's one of the, the sports is one of the closed societies where you kind of have a built-in advantage, where everyone so desperately looks at you as a teammate first and wants to be, almost everyone wants to be a good teammate, you know? So it might be even different from a workplace, I guess, in the workplace People try to run them like a sports team. You know, we're all on the same team. But there's often rivalries, and there's not as much inherent, oh, I have to support this person because he's gay. But certainly on a sports team, you know, if that guy doesn't set a pick for you, you're not going to get the open shot. So, you know, if we were to sort of rank all these sports, the four male sports and, and any other sports on some kind of evolutionary timeline, way over at the left, dragging its knuckles would be the NFL. They've had the hardest time adjusting, uh, I would say anyway, to, to some of the changes in society. So even the idea of Michael Sam was greeted with these unsourced or unidentified general managers saying, no, that's going to be a distraction to have a gay player on our team. You on Hang Up and Listen said, really, every workplace in America can now accommodate a new gay employee. employee except the NFL. But the NFL really, I mean, it looks like they're trying to change. They have proposed, or they will propose, I guess, this a new rule against racial and gender-based taunts on the field. That's a penalty? Yeah. Well, first of all, I think that, you know, you also note that 86% of uh, NFL players uh, surveyed said they'd be fine with it. I kind of think baseball, given its southern roots, is maybe the one that's most reluctant to change. But huh. on, this, uh, on this thing about, you know, you know, certain words getting a 15-yard penalty, it seems like the least the least they could do. Mm -hmm. If anything, I don't know how you could, well, um, I guess you could criticize this. There will be the dynamic of probably a white referee maybe throwing the flag about what one black person says to another black person. So, you know, that could be maybe discomforting. And there's there's certainly um, nuances to the use of the words, but if someone uses it aggressively as a slur, in the past, I think just a word wouldn't necessarily get the yellow flag, But because the referees have to be told when to throw the flag, and words don't usually do it. Not words from player to player. You know, insults don't get the flag, but a shove would. Now, if all they're saying is there are going to be certain insults that get a flag, in fact, if they're just saying there's going to be one word that gets a flag, if it's said in anger from player to player, like I think that's fine. If if this is the word. I mean, of course, that. Then you have the issue of, well, how far do we go? Okay, before we even get to that, I think it's fine to say that if someone uses the N-word in, in, in uh, a heated way in an NFL game, it gets a penalty that sh not too many people should object to that. Um, although some of the coverage suggested also that uh, gender-based taunts uh, would be part of this. And I was wondering if, you know, if you told Matthew Stafford that he throws like a girl, yeah. uh, whether that would be a 15-yard penalty. It's hard to know exactly what they mean by that. Well, we're, we're a week away from what the competition committee is actually going to figure out. This is one of those things that everyone's got like a little bit of an empty vessel that everyone's pouring their worries or what-ifs or. Here's a good point, I think. You know, if uh, we're going to use, say, racial words, get a penalty, racial slurs, then you can't say redskins, I guess. 
You know, exactly. Well, good point. Um, I, but I'm wondering also, do you, does this look to you like a larger moment of self-evaluation by the NFL? I mean, we know that they, they fought off all kinds of modifications re- related to concussion policy to a point where and, and even offered this, you know, pitifully low settlement on it and, and really, you know, became this league that, that thinking people really started to ask questions about. And these questions have been magnified by things, obviously, by the Miami the Miami Dolphins scandal, the, the, the bullying of Jonathan Martin. I mean, is is the NFL finally doing kind of a gut check about all this stuff, or is it cosmetic? What does it look to you, like to you? Yeah, this is what I think. I think that the NFL is really good at playing a clear authoritarian role. And when someone does something that's clearly wrong, Goodell and his minions are great at bringing down the punishment. I mean, that's how the NFL has always been. Black and white lines, this is wrong. I mean, some rules have nuance and interpretation, but mostly if we know there's a wrong, we'll come down on it, and he's come down on it hard. So there are two ways to look at it. One is there's definitely the PR angle and with the Jonathan Martin investigation and so forth, um, even though Richie Incognito used uh, the N-word, so did Martin's two of uh, his three tormentors are African-American. But I think it's, if you want to say, oh, this is just PR, it certainly is PR. I don't know if it's just PR. If you want to criticize this, it's that the NFL's okay at saying, no, this is clearly wrong. Maybe they want to get some pats on the back for that. But when it's more of a gray area, like with head injuries, then they don't really know what to do or sometimes have the exact wrong stance on the issues. You could also say, well, this is just I mean, if we say the NFL now gets it, then what do we do about Ray Rice and his girlfriend? What do we do about Darren Sharp? Or what do we do about all these areas where they don't get it? So maybe they're acting like super forcefully on this one area where they know they have the public behind them. Like sometimes a politician does, you know, he gins up this one area. Hey, everyone loves me for my keeping kids safe bill. And he's got like all these terrible policies on other areas that he wants you to forget. Um, give a fast answer because we're running out of time. And I should say Emily Bassalon is going to be with us and a group of other uh, female uh, sports commentators on Tuesday talk about some of the issues that Mike just raised. But um, I also wondered, you know, every once in a while around the time of the Super Bowl, and it happened again this time, the NFL's tax-free status is sort of brought up. And, and I sort of wondered whether that makes them nervous, too. As I say, answer succinctly because we're running out of time. But I wonder if that kind of shooting at their feet gets their attention. I think that they uh, all estimates are they'd be giving up about $10 million if they gave up their tax-free status. I don't know how long it's given how much money they're making already. I don't know how long it's going to be worth it for them. Then again, if they didn't have tax-free status, we wouldn't know that Roger Goodell was getting paid 40-something million dollars. Absolutely. Mike Pesca, so great to talk to you. Awesome. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. And uh, we'll, we will be back tomorrow, as I said, with another show kind of related to sports with these, uh, a wonderful panel of sports journalists and analysts and scientists and commentators. Your mama's gonna wash your mouth out with soap if you don't stop using those terrible words. I'm talking about very bad words. Don't you ever think about using bad words. I'm Kyle Wolf. Alright, this next play is gonna go like this. Kaplan, you're a super smart lady. Go with your gut. Talarski, you really think outside the box. Go to the right, wait for my throw. Hill, I read some of your poetry and it's really fantastic. Use it to distract number 11, McEnroe. You're a good guy. I want you to know that. On three. One, two, three. <laughs> <laughs>